You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Our scripture reading this morning, our passage is Psalm 83. We've been going through the Psalms uh, pretty much every summer for a while now. And uh, last week we did Psalm 73, the week before that Psalm 63. So this week we are looking at Psalm 83. So if you want to open your Bibles with me or uh, your Bible app or whatever it is that you have, um, please join me um, for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 83. O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God, for behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more, for they conspire with one accord against you. They make a covenant the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Ashur also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, All their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, Let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. My God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that You have spoken to us. And I pray that you would give us now eyes to see and ears to hear your words. That you would, as we learn about the Psalms, you would teach us how to pray. That you would teach us how to pray when we are uh, in distress when we are pressed on every side, that you would teach us what it is to look to Jesus. And it's in his name that I ask these things. Amen. You may or may not be aware of the fact that in the country of Iran, there is a massive explosion of Christian 
uh, growth, uh, many, many people are converting. Um, that said, the country uh, is 95 to 99.9 some percent uh, Muslim. So despite the incredible sweeping growth of Christianity, um, Christians remain a very, very small minority. Um, a, a story that I read this week is of a couple uh, named uh, uh, Ali and Dari, an uh, Iranian couple, and they were um, very uh, zealous in sharing the gospel uh, in their country. And But it got to the point where actually it was becoming dangerous for them to be sharing their faith, so they actually left the country and went to Turkey. Well, they continued to be zealous in sharing the gospel and also landed themselves in trouble in Turkey and um, were uh, accused of challenging Islam there as well. And so they were going to be deported. And when they were at the airport, Dari, the wife, uh, in fear of being sent back to Iran, uh, essentially had a nervous breakdown in the airport. And uh, personnel were called, and um, what actually ended up happening was the two of them were taken and put in prison, um, actually, and they were separated. Uh, separated for several months. They occasionally got to see each other just a few times, uh, and just for five minutes apiece. And Ali uh, was put into a cell in which um, he was uh, surrounded by uh, 15 ISIS members, all who were committed to uh, different uh, plans for if they were released. Um, and so here he was. He was entirely surrounded by uh, folks who did not believe uh, in Christianity. So here he is faced and surrounded um, and in fact, this psalm is a psalm of a God's people being surrounded, much like Iranian Christians or like Ari and uh, Ali, or sorry, Dari and Ali. And so this morning, I would like to walk through this psalm and think about, and as we walk through this psalm, think about the challenges that God's people have always faced at any point. And what I'd like to look at in this psalm, I'd like to look at three things. I'd like to look at the problem that God's people are facing, and then look at the plea or the prayer for help that God's people uh, offer up, and then finally look at the purpose. Why? What's the aim of this prayer? What's the end goal that God's people want? So we'll look at the problem, the prayer, and then the purpose of the prayer. So the problem, the people of Israel, uniquely among all peoples of the earth, were called chosen by God because of God's love. They weren't chosen because they were like super awesome or they were the biggest, baddest people around. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses actually tells the people pretty explicitly, why did you get picked? Why did God pick you to be this special people, to live in this special land? 
And Moses says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be the people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. The specialness is grounded on on God's love and God's promises. In fact, Israel was tiny. They weren't chosen because there were so many of them, and it just made sense. God didn't pick them because they were the most talented people on the planet either. Perhaps some of you have had the experience of, you know, like in gym class where you pick people to be on your team or maybe not to be on a team, right? Or you get picked last. Maybe you weren't the fastest or you couldn't kick the ball the farthest. Um, God did not pick Israel because they could kick the ball really far, they could run really fast. He picked them because he loved them and because he made promises to their forefathers. And this is, of course, the same thing with the Christian church. Paul says to the Corinthians that the Corinthians were starting to get puffed up. They thought that they were, uh, they had all these great spiritual insights because of Christianity, and they were starting to have issues in the church. And Paul said, hey, just to remind you, not a lot of you were from like the upper classes. Not a lot of you were super smart and straight A students. That's not why God saves us, not because of what we do. So Israel was tiny. They were tiny and not very significant, and they were vulnerable. That's part of the problem. But then in verses 6 through 8, the psalmist lists 10 nations. And each of these nations has a story and a history with Israel. And we can't go into all those details now. But one thing to note is that the number 10 is a number for completeness. There there is a complete number of enemies that are sitting around Israel. And the last one in verse 8, Assyria or Ashur, as you have in the ESV, was a terrifying power. They were massive and very dangerous. And we have records of them being incredibly brutal whenever they conquered peoples. Things that would turn your stomach. So the nations are, there's tons of them. Israel is tiny. And here's the other factor that makes the problem so significant is geography. Israel, the land that God gave them, was prime real estate. If you look at a map, if you like maps, Israel sits at the intersection of Africa, Asia, and essentially a link to Europe. Three continents are connected at this point, and there are major highways that come through this land. So everybody would like to have control of these highways, to control commerce, to control all sorts of movement. And in fact, in Israel's history, they had numerous people that conquered them because of the land. In verse 12, in the past, Israel's enemies, we're told, said, let us take possession of the pasture lands of God. They wanted the property. 
And returning to the experience of brothers and sisters in Iran, this is what one Iranian Christian said. He said, becoming a Christian in Iran is a crime. One of the most common problems that believers face is attending house churches. People come and go very slowly so as not to draw attention. When worshiping, there are moments when we wanted to sing praise with passion, but due to the fear of our neighbors hearing our voices and making problems for us, we couldn't do that. We had to hold those passions and kill those desires inside us. There's this incredible, even the sense of the church gathering, that they are surrounded even by their neighbors, and they have to be very careful. And these enemies here in our psalm not only want the land, not only is Israel tiny, but they have made a plan. They've made a a bond together, a pact, that they are going to act against God's people. In verse 3, we're told, with cunning, they conspire against your people. They plot against those you cherish. In verse 4, we can hear them, we can actually hear the words of their plot, right? Come, they say, let us destroy them as a nation so that Israel's name is remembered no more. Not only do they want the land, but they don't want the people on the land there. But what's interesting is not only do they want the land and not only do they desire to destroy God's people, but this in verse 5 means that they are implicated, that they are actually, it's against you, against you, God, that they are making a covenant, they are making a pact. And in fact, if you, this is a major theme throughout the book of Psalms. In Psalm chapter 2, One of the big things that happens in that psalm is that the nations rage against God and they plan to fight the king that God appoints. And here we see the very, very same thing. They desire to wipe out the name and the reputation of God's people. So what is the psalmist to do in face of such a massive obstacle, not just an obstacle, severe danger? Well, he turns to prayer. He turns to prayer and a particular type of prayer, a prayer that will call upon God to act against his enemies. So look with me at verse 1, as we look at the prayer, the plea of the psalmist, he says, O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. In the next verse, he talks about all the noise that God's enemies are making. And so one of the things the psalmist wants is he wants God to say something. He wants God to speak into this situation. So he wants God's mouth to be activated, is one thing he wants. The other thing, notice, is that he does not want God to be still. 
He wants God to get into motion. One translation says, do not stand aloof, O God. Don't be far. Come near to this situation. Come near to us because we are in danger. In Bible times, if you're a tiny little people group, your survival is entirely dependent upon being connected to some great big king. That's just how the world worked. And we actually have letters. We have letters of tiny kings writing to big kings saying, would you come help us? And even letters like, hey, they're coming, sign small king. And then we have letter number two, um, they're really close, small king. Letter three, dear king, we are in really big trouble, please help. So we have records of people calling and calling and calling for the big king, okay? And that is one of the things that we see here is that the psalmist is calling out to the big king to say, please, get off your throne, get the armies, and come help us. Don't, don't stay in the capital. Like, we are, we're out, and we need you to come help us. And there are particular actions that this psalmist really wants this king to do, aside from not be silent and not sit still. In verses 9 through 12, one of the things that the, the psalmist does is he's like, okay, let's remember what God has done in the past. What has God done in the past? Verse 9, do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. This is a story from the book of Judges. Um, We can't go into all the details of the story, but if you remember Deborah, the story of Deborah and Barak, the Midianites had surrounded them. They had conquered them for 20 years. And one of the things that they did was whenever Israel had good crops, the Midianites come in, they take all the goods, and they leave Israel desolate, okay? So Israel cries out to God, and God miraculously rescues them. Sisera was the, uh, the commander of that army, and he's the, if you remember the story, the famous one that gets the tent peg driven through his head by the lady. That's that story. In verse 11, make them like the nobles Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Ziba and Zalmunna. That's the story of Gideon. Where, sorry, actually those are the Midianites. In the first story, they are Canaanites. The Midianites come in and conquer Israel for seven years. And Gideon, he's the guy who puts out the fleece several times. If you remember that story, he's totally terrified. And one of the things God keeps doing is saying, you have too many guys to go fight. And he's like, are you serious? So that's that story. And one of the things that's significant about that story, and the reason why the psalmist remembers these things, is that sometimes, you know, I don't know if you've, uh, you know, seen the, the video of, like, the little girl who's, like, you know, like, doing her power talk before the morning in front of the mirror. 
It's kind of like that. You've got to be like, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. I can do this. I can do this. And for the psalmist, it's like, not like, he can't do that, right? He's a small Israelite. He can't be like, look how big and strong we are. Look how big and strong we are. He has to go, what has God done in the past? What has God done in the past? Can God do this? Yes, God can do this. And so that's what he is doing in verses 9 through 12, is remembering God's victories. So then in verses 13, 14, and 15, he now asks God to do something, okay? Verse 13, oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, here's the picture of a storm blowing in. The wind starts blowing. If you've ever been in a place, I mean, we have it here in the hills. You can see the clouds coming in. The wind starts swirling. The dust gets churned up, and then the storm rolls in. And in verse 15, we see, So may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. If you've ever seen, like, news footage of a hurricane, right? Things start blowing, you see the wind, the palm trees start leaning, and then you can see the hurricane at full blast, right? And you see these crazy news reporters who are out there on the streets or some porch, you know, maybe even wearing a baseball helmet, because debris is flying, and trees are falling over, cars are getting pushed around, and waves are starting to roll in. The psalmist is, is saying, God, come in, blow in like a massive hurricane. Like, do not hold back. Let's see some nine-foot swells here. Flood these guys. And in verse 14, he says, as a fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze. This could be a reference potentially to the lightning of a storm. But either way, if you get wind blowing and you get fire, just a little bit of a spark in a pretty dry place, and Israel is a pretty dry place most of the time, that thing will take off. The psalmist wants God to come in here to rescue them with a full-on storm. Make them like whirling dust in front of the wind. that they might no longer be a threat, destroy them. Now, one of the questions is, can a Christian pray this? Can a Christian pray a psalm like this? And it seems in some ways, yes. These, these prayers are in here for a reason. However, one thing to notice about the way the psalmist prays. The psalmist is not looking for God to give him the resources to take vengeance on his enemies. The psalmist is entirely leaving it both to, for God to act and for God to act in his timing. And Paul, in fact, says something very, very similar. In Romans 12, verses 19 through 21. 
right? Small, Paul's writing to the Christians in the city of Rome, the center of the empire, and Christianity is by far not the majority religion of the Roman Empire, okay? And if you're in Rome and you decide to not worship uh, the Roman gods or uh, reverence dead past ancestors, uh, you will not be treated very well. But here's what Paul says in Romans 12. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And he says, Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So how do we fit this with the psalm? It does seem that there is a place for the Christian to be like, oh Lord, the enemies are great. Please do something. But in the Christian's actual actions, you leave it to God and you do what is good. So the plea is, in, in light of the problem, the plea is, oh Lord, bring all out victory. We have a really big problem. But finally, what is the purpose? What's the, what is the goal of this prayer? He does want to be rescued. He wants the enemy vanquished and scattered and embarrassed. Verse 16, he says, fill their faces with shame. Let them, verse 17, let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, right? He does, he wants the threat removed, the danger removed. However, Asaph's goal is not merely to address the threat. He's, he's actually more concerned about God's name and about God's reputation. Look in verse 16 again. He says, fill their faces with shame but he doesn't stop there. He says that they may seek your name, O Lord. And verse 18, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, right? Why is this, why is this significant? Well, one thing that's striking about this is that in verse four, we actually have this, verse four, they say, come, let us wipe them out. This is the enemies of Israel. Let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. The threat is to Israel's name and existence. But the psalmist, rather than concluding at the end of the story, end of the prayer, sorry, is not protect our name, but rather it is that your name O oh Lord, is known. And here's the other thing that's striking. The psalm starts by him saying, O oh God, right? He says, O oh God, twice and a few times throughout the psalm. But here, he wants the name of the Lord to be known. And that name, Lord, when you see in the Bible, capital L-O-R-D, in most Bibles, that is God's special name, that he showed 
to Israel in his covenant with them, showing that he had, he had picked them. They were special, and he gave them that name as the name that they can use with him, his unique name for Israel. And so one of the things it shows, God's name is the most important thing for the psalmist. But it also shows Israel's special connection with God. And one of the things that's important, it seems here, for us to pause and reflect on is that ultimately, so many churches are deeply committed to their name. And I think that if we lose sight of the fact that if, if we switch it around, that ultimately it's our name, our reputation that is most important versus God's, we are in big trouble. And it's not hard to look through the news and find churches that have in attempts to protect their reputation have in the long run ultimately actually brought dishonor to the name of the Lord. So for us as a church, we want the name of Jesus to be always the highest priority. It's actually interesting if you read the book of Acts, if you read through the first few chapters, there's this constant reference to the name, the name of Jesus, that the church seems to really have this clear uh, focus on. So if we forget that our lives are about God's reputation and not ours, uh, we will certainly lose our way. Now here's one more thing to note in this interest in God's reputation and God's name. Look at verse 18. The psalmist prays that they may know, that all of these nations may know that you alone, alone, right? We don't want you to just be sort of have a great reputation among the gods, but we want you to have the only reputation among the gods. But then, whose name is the Lord, so we have the special name that God has given to Israel, that you are the most high over all of the earth. That you are the most high over all of the earth. That title, the most high, is actually a title that is often used of probably God's biggest competitor among all these nations that, are, that the um, psalmist has mentioned is Baal or Baal. Baal was considered the most high. And guess what? Baal was also the storm god. So in this psalm, the psalmist wants not only God to show himself to be the great king over all of these other nations, but to come in like a storm and show himself to be higher and better and the only God even over competing gods. There is no other God, no other God to be worshipped, no other God to be revered. So he's asking God to show himself in victory over his enemies, to show his greatness, to show his power over the creation, 
and that Baal, these nations are nothing. They are nothing. Now, when it comes to the New Testament and Jesus shows up, Jesus is actually going to be the victory of God. Listen to Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. Sorry, actually, that's the Father, and he is triumphing over these rulers and authorities in him, that is in Christ. Christ becomes the means by which the Father asserts his victory over all competitors. And then one of the things that's crazy is that God's people now are then sent into all the world. It's almost like he wants to prove that he's God by distributing his people and putting them all amongst their enemies everywhere. So they are in constantly, they're constantly surrounded and in need of calling back to the great king for rescue. So here's Israel, tiny little Israel, surrounded and praying for God to come rescue them. Because there is no exit. They have no exit. They are surrounded by these enemies. But they know that God has acted in the past. And they know what God is capable of. And they remind themselves of what God is capable of. And to conclude, by word of encouragement, returning to Ali and Dari, one of the things that's crazy is here's Ali in this cell surrounded by ISIS members, right? And he's in prison for being a Christian and being a zealous evangelist. All those ISIS members, they convert to Jesus. They come to know Jesus. Ali could have hid that he was a Christian, that he associated with the name of Christ. Especially when facing so much opposition. Does he hide that? No. And guess what? Jesus, who places his people in the midst of their enemies, he didn't fail him. He did not fail Ali. And he brought more people to know his name. So whenever you feel surrounded, recall the things that God has done and who God is. That he might show himself to have a great name. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, here we are. You have placed us where we are. Each one of us, each one of us has various circumstances. 
And your church will always face difficult circumstances. We want to give you thanks, O Lord, for brothers and sisters in Iran who are sharing Christ with their neighbors, even in the face of a lot of danger and hostility. And I pray, O Lord, that we would love your name. We pray that we would desire to see your name lifted up, to see your name lifted up among the nations, regardless of what happens. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would delight in the fact that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Please give us hope and strength. Increase our trust in what you can do, not what we can do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.